Boom, what up? Hello, bonjour, and hola, real leaders. This is Kevin Edwards, your host here, and I am so excited. You're tuning in to one of our amazing experiences. What you're about to hear is going to be fresh, real, and loaded with inspiration, guaranteed to support your impact journey. So sit back, enjoy the listen, folks share a review afterward, and always keep it real. All right, well, we will get this show on the road. Here we go. In five, four, clearing my throat, three, two, and one. And welcome, everyone, to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today, folks, we have Holly Ruxin, the CEO and founder of Montcalm TCR. Holly, how are you doing today? I'm great. Really happy to be here. Thanks, Kevin. Well, thanks for coming on the show. And TCR, quickly for the audience, TCR stands for what? Uh, Tools for Care and Renewal, or the initials of three of my children, all the same. Trevor uh, Cole Ruxton, Tali Chloe Ruxton, Tanner Colin Ruxton. I love by that. By accident. It is always so funny how business leaders and entrepreneurs come up with names of their organizations. There's always a little fun you know, note in there that people go, oh, really? That's why it's called Patagonia? That's why it's called Real Leaders? That's yeah. why it's called TCR and Malcolm? So, well, Malcolm is a street I raised them on in Vernal Heights, San Francisco. So oh, is it? That's where it came from, yeah. Interesting, interesting. Well, Holly, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you on. I think, uh, you know, for the folks listening out there today, um, this is going to be an interesting episode that you're about to listen to. Holly and I have uh, been playing this for, I don't know, was it probably two months now? Um, and I think, you know, we, we want to start always at the origin story. Help our audience understand a little bit more about you, Holly, and then we can go into uh, uh, the fifth dimension. Amazing. Um, all right. Well, it all started uh, where I became, I fell in love with capital markets at like 19 years old when I worked at Citibank in London um, doing uh, currency warrants. So I got into derivatives. So I have an incredible background in deep capital markets structure. Um, I went to business school in New York and I found myself on the desk at Goldman Sachs doing fixed income derivatives in the 90s with Hank Paulson and John Corzine and all the powers that be kind of the, the 2.0 of um, the uh, Solomon book. Liar's Poker, I think it's called. Um, and then found myself in San Francisco and, and doing private wealth management about 22 years ago. But I am a weird person in the fact that I love money the way I love the way money flows. I love the way capital markets is created to help our planet move forward. You know, the, 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 the beginning of capital markets has always been to create. We just figured out a way to harness and flow and give people money back from when, you know, they, they would, people would hold gold on the shelf. I think back in like, um, I don't know, the 15th, 14th century. And one of the guys who looked on a shelf and realized he was holding everyone's gold while they were off at war, whatever they were doing, realized, you know, it's just sitting there. I could actually lend it out. And that started the banking system. Like basically the, the history of capital markets is beautiful from back to like Socrates. Um, and then I had um, kind of an awakening in 2008 when the markets fell apart and uh, my eldest son became um, kind of severely disabled out of just nowhere. He was five years old and they started losing all skills. I just had my third child. And so I kind of woke up to think something different's going on in the world. Literally at the water cooler, everyone's talking about the world falling apart and I just started feeling transformation. Hmm. And I didn't realize at the time how many people were doing impact investing in 08. 
I was deep, I was at Morgan Stanley, I was, I've been at Goldman Sachs, I've been at Bank of America, Montgomery Securities. I had no idea that there were people thinking this way. And when I started going to kind of the Stanford and all the, the incredible medical facilities that couldn't help my son because he was kind of off their map of what was going on with his brain, I started realizing that there was something bigger going on. It was really quite an awakening. And I think most people who are um, very deep in impact and, and, and are, are real leaders had some sort of awakening moment that kind of helped them get to another dimension. And so that was mine in 08. And uh, I've been studying ever since. And uh, Open.com 10, 10 years ago, 2012, the Mayan shift, right when we were supposed to be going into a new age. So a lot of really cool, um, cool stuff in my background, both kind of deeply understanding capital markets and then also really a scholar of um, where we're going in the future of business, future of money, and where I think this planet is going to uh, learn how to live in flow. Well, let's, let's talk about the flow and, and more so like how, how the flow of your thesis has evolved over time. You know, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, the capital markets, uh, why it was started back in the ancient days. This, this could be a value. It was all about lending and getting a return on that, on that loan that you provide. A way to grow your company, getting the money that you need to grow your company, your business, your idea, your energy. How, how has your thesis changed since that 19-year-old uh, working, you know, uh, in, in Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley to now where you are today? Well, I think it's always been inside of me. Um, there's, it, it really kind of comes down to a value system. And even when I joined Goldman in the mid nineties, they were still a private company. They actually had a very integral value system of you know, the, the customer's always right. I mean, I did watch it shift um, while I was there when they went public. Um, but there was a quote when I was going to open Mount Com um, in kind of 2010 and 11 and, and, and doing my research. Socrates has a quote that says, um, earning money for your family is honorable and anything past that is dishonorable. So really just this, this idea that money is just the way that we exchange value on this planet and always has been. There's nothing wrong with it. A lot of people, especially spiritual leaders or people who, who are trying to be more wholesome, hate money, don't want to talk about money. And what they don't really understand is just the value system that we have put on it in our modern times. Money is, is really just inherently a beautiful way that we exchange value because we can't barter anymore as we get bigger. So the way that my thesis has changed over time is really just expanding in my voice and expanding in my understanding that there's also, I, I remember if you look at the French economists, and I think that's the 18th century, they also really talked about just the value of the capital market system and kind of the beautiful aspects of it. Um, even Adam Smith, and I could never find this again, talks about capitalism run amok and how it can hurt. So we've grown up at a time with capitalism somewhat run amok. And there's a lot of ways I can explain why I think that's happened and why the value system has kind of got on it to create more duality, more win-lose, more extraction. But that's not, to me, the basis of what capital markets was created. We started stocks so that you want to start a company, go out and get some money from people. It's like a beautiful thing. And then you're going to give them dividends back. Everything in its basic form is actually quite beautiful. I mean, the futures market, that's what really lived in Chicago after college. And you have these farmers that needed to get a certain amount per barrel or for their corn um, for their, uh, their crop to pay their mortgage. They needed $10. 
well, weather would come in and that would screw that all up. And so if someone decided to give them a contract that says in June, we're going to give you $10 mm. a bushel. And that gave them their own sustainability. It's really, and that's one of the first derivatives there is futures market. That's actually beautiful. Like it's amazing. You've now created sustainability for farmers. So to me, the basis of capital markets is all about sustainability. Mm. And there's just all sorts of crazy stuff that's been piled on top of it in the last 50 years. Well, and, and you don't even have to look that far back to really realize how lending can really bring people out of poverty. I mean, look look at Mike, Muhammad Yunus and, and micro lending, uh, what they're doing for people who are unbanked, unidentified, can't get a loan from the bank, and they're providing them an option to provide. Again, I love that earning money for their family is valuable. Um, so let's expand on that a little bit, Holly. Where do you think the capital markets went awry? I guess that's a little bit of a broad question, but. Yeah, I mean, I think um, obviously there's technology and we won't get talk about that in a second, but I, and, and, and I'm not an expert in this at all. Um, but one of the aspects, and this was kind of in Reagan economics, I believe, and if someone's more into politics, they might say I'm wrong, but the C corporation. So this is something because we, we are, we've been a B Corp for 10 years. Um, and B Corp is um, not only for profit, but it's for uh, planet and people. And the nature of the C corporation, because when I started to become a registered investment advisor, I have a fiduciary responsibility for every dollar that I manage. Very different when I was a broker dealer at Morgan Stanley. You do not have fiduciary responsibility unless you um, have discretionary accounts. You do not have fiduciary responsibility as a broker dealer. As a registered investment advisor, I really started understanding fiduciary responsibility. If you are on the board of a C corporation, you have to do share responsibility for one thing, profit. That's it. So I think what happened, if you go from the 80s to now, you might have had people go, wait a second, what about the people? What about the environment? And you basically had someone else thinking, we have to, you're only fiduciary responsibility for profit. So if we're making those decisions, it's going to hurt profit. We can't do it. So it's kind of like the nice way of looking at the structure of our corporations over the last 30, 40 years that I think kind of is the basis for a lot of extraction. And you could say greed, but really at the end of the day, board members across every single board that's meeting right this second, the only discussion they're allowed to have in that board meeting is for profit, unless you're a B Corp. And that we know that is, is, is very, you know, is only just starting and there's not many B Corps where you have fiduciary responsibility to people and place to environment also. So I think that's one of the big basis. That's really, had, yeah, it's, it's really interesting because, you know, a, a lot of folks say, okay, well, well, how do we change this thing? And they say, okay, well, we need to make sure that we're measuring, let's say our environmental metrics. We need to make sure that we have a focus on, on the social side and, and we need to make sure that, that governments is, is good so we can maximize stakeholder value. But a lot of people also argue that it's not necessarily an accounting's standard it's maybe what you're proposing which is it needs to be a legal standard it needs to be something in place that holds people accountable and and, and maybe incentivizes people for not solely acting just for for profit or also considering uh, maybe long a long-term view how do you see companies and and uh, i guess our legal structure changing to to solve this problem I mean, you have two sides of the coin here, right? You have one side, which I agree, it really does come down. That's why I'm saying fiduciary responsibility. I'm a very, I'm a very quantitative person. 
and I'm also go very high in qualitative. So the quantitative kind of linear, or you could sometimes say masculine sharpened pencil aspect of this is again, if you were in a boardroom and you raise your hand and say, we need to do something better for the company that supports a different value. And someone says it's gonna lose us money. It becomes a very linear binary fiduciary responsibility. Nope, not allowed to. Okay, so you have gray area there. And then you have the other aspect of, and that needs to change. I mean, that, sim that simply needs to, it's not only incentives, but you need the legality of the board because we have a litigious society. Um, and I'm, I'm very much simplifying this. And someone who's listening is on a board may agree or, or disagree um, on how this plays out. And then you have kind of the other side of this where in an evolving universe, the universe is always evolving. It's always expanding. It's just, that's physics. In an expanding, evolving universe, as we are going to what I believe is higher dimensions, where we're going from the head to the heart, and you can see it in our children, we're starting to come from the heart, there's going to be pushback on that because maybe powers that be don't want that to happen or just out there in the ethers, and, and you see a lot of pushback on ESG lately. So I think you've got both aspects happening. We need to change incentives, and we need to change some of the legality of fiduciary responsibility. And we also have to realize that sometimes there's going to be certain aspects that don't want evolution to happen. And I truly believe we're evolving into a multi-dimensional heart-based environment, society, and eventually financial system. And I think we are all bridge builders to that. So uh, for those who have yet to cross the bridge, help us understand, you know, what do you mean exactly by the, the fifth dimension? What do you mean by this, this term flow? It's amazing because I've gotten that question a lot lately. And I think that um, and I'm finally really able to answer that. So you ever think about someone and they text you? Yes. It, that's a different dimension. That's an intuitive dimension. It's very simple. It's three, it's three dimensions. The, having a fifth dimension, there's two other, it's aspects. It's using your spiritual and emotional body and intuition um, to, to execute your life. And we're all doing it more and more and paying attention to when that happens. I mean, animals, you know, dogs, they work much more on heart intuition. I, my, my kids were asking I, why the dog was going to a certain family member and they could finally hear me. And I said, the dog goes to whoever emotionally needs the dog. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're right. That's a different dimension. That's just, that's just, that's not third dimension. That's going into fourth and fifth dimension. It's just adding on new skills in the way we interact as human beings. And I think we are all starting to understand and feel that a little bit more and it's happening more and more coincidence or intuition. And so from an investment lens for how you're looking at companies, how you're looking at shifting and changing the world, how does one see through or look through this lens of the fifth dimension? Um, that's where you just look more expansively to what's going on. So we've had, we, we do a lot of private investments. Um, in fact, we barbell, we do um, a lot of cold to maturity bonds because you can know your yield to maturity and you don't have to worry about do a lot on kind of sharp ratio, what unit of risk are you getting for your unit return? If you hold a municipal bond, it's paying you four and a half percent tax exempt. You just kind of know that you're going to get your four and a half percent if you hold to maturity, barring default. And we do a lot of different private investments. And so we've analyzed a lot of different only impact or 100% impact funds over the last 10 years. And what we're really looking for is not only that you are having impact, tangible impact on what the investments are 
investing in, but how is the fund manager interacting with the founders? Is it, is it from a multi-dimensionality? Is it also making sure that their well-being is taken care of? Is it really the way that their own value system? Sometimes you get people who are investing in impact, but they're playing the old game. They're still taking somewhat of an extractive stance or they're not investing in impact themselves because they don't truly believe in it. It's a little bit more tactical. They're trying to win. So we spend a lot of time really understanding kind of from the bottom of the depths of who these fund managers are and how they're approaching the world. And are they approaching the world really very simply more from a heart centered than necessarily from a, a head winning extractive center. With that said, we don't invest in anyone we don't think is giving us the right returns for the risk they're taking. So we do not, That's this is really the mix of masculine and feminine. You know, masculine, I always call the sharpened pencil. Real, but it's the divine masculine. It's not, not, it's not toxic. It's not extractive. It's not creed. It's being really, really articulate with your quantitative returns, knowing what you're doing, being super smart about it, being the best at it. But while having kind of what you might call the feminine, which is a really good value system on top of it, being multidimensional in the way that you're looking at your founders, where you're looking at the entrepreneurs, the way you're interacting with them, how you're taking care of your own employees, how your fee structure looks, what is your what is your operation? We always look at read operational um, documents for every fund. We've, we've, we've learned our lesson the hard way. Well, that's that all that's really important. Well, it's interesting. And I guess where my mind goes to is how do you differentiate from maybe a long-term versus a short-term move in an organization? How do you differentiate from a, a good move maybe versus a, an unquote, bad move? Um, help us kind of understand that. You mean an investment or? What, you know, so for folks listening out there, like, yo, impact is new. It is this force for good. They're gonna make good decisions for the, the planet and the environment. What is a bad decision? Well, a bad decision is is, a, is an investment that doesn't compensate you for the, the risk you're taking with this right reward. It's just it's bad returns. I mean, you can you can go old school on this. It's I, I do not believe in concessionary returns, and in some places it makes sense. We do a lot of stuff with donor advised funds, etc., where it's already risk capital. You don't necessarily need to get the returns. Um, it's really quite basic. It comes down to impact investing is new, but I would argue that it's not new. It's it's called value investing. You know, I was educated at Columbia Business School, and it's key on value investing, investing in something that's undervalued. Well, we need to we need climate change. I mean, we just went through all time highs here in the Bay Area in the last couple of weeks. We've got fires. We're investing in what the valuable on this planet. It's no different than you know Warren Buffett investing in Coca Cola, like. I, in hindsight, I don't think sugar was great for our planet, but at the time that had value and that was increasing. So impact investing is not a new concept or an asset class. It's just, it's investing in what's valuable for this planet. So a bad decision, bad decision is finding a manager that's not doing a good job. that's not doing their due diligence. That's not investing well. It's really the same thing we looked at 30 years ago. Um, so I don't really love putting a label on it. Um, it's investing on what's moving our planet forward. That's what investing has always been. What's moving our planet forward. I love that. I love the the concept of it's just it's traditional investing. It's just a value add. We're trying to look at companies who are undervalued, invest now. So as they grow, we, we seek higher returns. 
have you looked into any uh, impact metrics that you like that you find? Do you believe in measuring impact metrics, or is it just still strictly uh, performance on the on the return? No, we did our first impact report last year. Um, we used this amazing company, Andorra, um, and they measured, they went to all of our funds, got all the data we possibly could, um, and measured all of the impact that we're having. It's hard, and I know it was onerous on some of our funds to provide that data, but absolutely, we're really starting to see where we were able to look at every dollar that Broncom puts to work and see where it's having impact in the community and, and climate, et cetera. So yes, we really do believe in that. Um, it's early, it's hard, right? Especially for public stocks and ESG ratings, um, something I could talk about in a whole nother podcast, um, but it really, it, it, it's, it's a new measurement, but that absolutely is important to look again, it's transparency and, and quantitative articulation of what we're doing. We're not going all woohoo and let, let's save the planet. Let's you know, let's go do bucket drives like when I was in, in college. It, it's it's using the same metrics we've always used in finance, and and, and seeing what we're up to um, and measuring it. So yes, it's 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 going to grow and grow and grow. Just it it makes sense. And, and speaking from firsthand, you know, with our experience too, you know, when you when you have the, those strong values in an organization, you tend to attract people with the same values. People are motivated by by doing more than just their work, and, and really unlocking that that productivity that may have been missing at a traditional organization, thus helping us grow as a company, retain our employees. So it's really this this holistic system that, um, just speaking with a lot of different B Corp leaders, is really helping them grow their organizations. When it comes to flow, Holly, is this what you're talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. You, you know, you know, like the basics, you know, when you had a great day and you know, when things have gotten in your way, right? You just, you're not person, you know, you, some, some days are full of flow, boom, 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 boom. And other days are full of lessons. And so, yes, that is kind of the basic way of explaining it. And then what's coming up for me when you're saying that is, you know, I, I have employees, they're younger. It's not even a question to them about what we're doing. You know, I've got, got you know, um, young people under 30 working for me, and obviously they've been attracted to this company, um, whereas you go into my um, community and everyone's in their mid-50s, I don't know, impact, is it an impact? It's just, it's, someone said to me once that, um, you know, there was a time where, like, slavery was the norm. And then there was a generation where they couldn't conceive of it. And I don't know, you can get into politics in the South and the North. And I really believe that way about what, what's going on with impact. The younger people understand this in their blood. It's, it's, it's who they are, at least in the Bay Area. Um, my daughter will only shop at Reformation, which is all ecological. And, you know, they, they, don't, they won't do fast fashion anymore. That when I was in high school, so you know we really are just bridge builders to a next generation. I, I believe that that really understands this. Um, but we've got to build the companies and we've got to build the financial products for them to invest in and for them to keep going and growing, um, because we have a lot to unwind from the world of finance that I grew up in. So what would be some of those financial products that you're alluding to that would be different than today's financial products that are out there? Um, you know, it, it's win-win versus extraction. You know, with my, or I call it money at all costs. You know, um, 
you can just look at an investment where the only goal is to make money and it doesn't matter how it happens. There, and there's still, there's, le there's less of those out there. I and mean, if you go back 10 years for sure, um, as opposed to an investment that's trying to create value, hmm. very simply. It's, it is investing in something that's creating more value that's helping the planet go forward. Hmm. And for every um, company and every investment, you can you can do that litmus test on it. Hmm. And, and more and more, it's being articulated in the news. If you go back five, 10 years ago, it wasn't at all. Or even I'd say pre-COVID, COVID helped kind of this, this kind of insular time we've had as a society. I really felt impact investing coming out, not just as an, an investment, but as a way of being so that we can fix things, becoming much more prevalent in, in everyday language and in everyday conversations. And I think to get there, it's going to take, of course, a lot of education, such as listening to podcasts like these, listening to, to you know, reading newsletters, obviously getting kind of into this space. Um, you know, we're having the impact awards. We release this ranking every single year. And one of the most difficult things to justify to people is what qualifies an impact company or a values-based company versus a non-impact company? What would you say? The value system. Yeah. Is it again? Is it is it, it looking at every aspect of the way that they do their investments, they run their companies, they do their supply chain? I mean, there, there's so many examples. Or or are they cutting corners? I mean, I think this is the problem with public equities that you've got most companies that really are still are they still employing children in China? I mean, like really, you know, some of the basic stuff that we we have decided is the norm. And that's why it's gonna take a while for the ship to turn. Because and it's just the natural evolution of our of our global economy. I mean, I grew up in a time, you know, we didn't even have cell phones or emails or, you know, we spoke on the phone. And now that we have such transparency, you really can look at a company and how does it how does it treat all aspects of its business line? Mm. And is it done in a way that is win-win or is there win-lose and extraction? As you can look at a human being. Right. And, and now, you know, some, let's say people listening for the first time will say, well, you know, I run a business and if I were to go green, that would be, you know, 15, 20%, you know, more of my costs. Am I not values driven because I don't make a decision that would negatively impact my bottom line? No, you have to, you know, you have to make choices. Just asking that question gives you good values. Now, if you're a small business owner, I'm a small business owner. I understand that, that you absolutely, then you're tipping the value of your employees in front of it to making sure you can pay them. It's not linear like that. And that's why I think people skip to, if you're not, you know, you don't have green toilet paper because it's more expensive, you're not a values aligned business. You have to ask yourself, are you making decisions that are helping people, helping yourself, are looking around for a win-win at all time? And sometimes some things are going to lose in that, but it's a general way of showing up as opposed to not caring and just being extractive and saying, I'm just going to do that. I might have other choices, but I'm going to do that to make me more money. You know, anecdotally, I wonder how often you see that these days. You know, on, from, in a very like linear fashion, like, you know, from, from a holistic aspect, that's why one step at a time we can get there. Because I think most people care about, I, I do believe most people care about being good inherently. 
Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I love just the, the thought of, you know, it's it's this long-term play, right? It, these are far-sighted leaders uh, who are intentionally, and I, I replace value with intention for me. That's kind of how I kind of look at it. What is the intention of what you're trying to do? How do you wrap a model around that that generates profitability, retains accountability, focuses on your customers, and transform lives? Impact, I-M-P-A-C-T. That's how I kind of refer to an impact organization. What is your tension? How do you build a model around this that you, as you solve more problems, you make more money in the world to do good, which attracts a lot of talented individuals out there in the world that can unlock you know, a lot of amazing things. What are some of the examples that you've seen, Holly, that could best articulate um, how imp- an impact company can transform lives? Um, that was very well said. No. <laughs> that really encapsulated it very well. Um, the listeners like that. It's amazing. Um, I mean, there's there's lots of examples. There's there's one thing that we've been doing, which is is kind of interesting. Um, there's a company um, in India called Industry, and this amazing woman Neelam Shiver has won all sorts of entrepreneurial awards. And there's women artisans. Um, we were trying to do a for profit uh, note for them. They basically make baskets for Ikea at Banana Bark. And Ikea has all the orders. And kind of COVID hit. And so Ikea obviously back, backed off um, the purchase order orders or guaranteeing of purchase orders. But there's 1,900 women artisans in India, and 70% of them are, are the sole breadwinners for their family. And you can imagine. They, they'll get not-for-profit money from like USAID to train them how to make the baskets. But no one will give them the working capital to go buy the banana bark from the banana farmers. Now I live in still I live in the Bay Area, and I can watch anyone get money—not anyone, but a lot of money—floating around to start any kind of business. Um, and to me, having been in derivatives on Wall Street and seen them create any product there is, is determined to create a pipe to get these women $50 million to go buy it. They've already got the purchase orders. You're buying, you're buying the baskets. We're all buying the baskets. They're beautiful. You can see them right on the Kia website. We tap the donor advised fund market with that people know is a money that's given away. It's kind of a personal foundation. It's already risk capital. Um, and instead of doing grants, did uh, a loan to these women in India and got the donor advised fund. So, it, so that one is actually a small return, but it's amazing because it's already, um, it's already donated capital. So, that's an example of really using um, new pipes to create flow to help lives. Um, and then, of course, you know, there's incredible impact companies doing, um, we uh, invest in companies doing work in East Africa and, and India, um, climate change, uh, a lot of renewable energy, um, organic farming in the US. I mean, every single aspect of creating value, um, there's more and more investments that are, are doing that. It, it, it's, uh, it's good for people, it's good for the planet, it's good for profits. Um, and, and it really encompasses this, uh, this stakeholder approach, right? If, if I am you know, trying to provide education or funding for employees in an underserved area, well, now they can get that access, it, less stress at work, they can be more productive, they don't have to worry about their kids going to school because they have it now. It's like all of these little different things really do add up. And in terms of flow and energy, have you ever thought about you know, a way you could, I guess, I don't know, uh, measure flow, measure energy? 
measure energy. Um, first of all, you can feel it. I can feel it. Um, it really comes from success. I mean, I was thinking we do have an incredible investment called HCAP that has um, mid-teen returns. It's all, all about job creation. I mean, I could go on and on these incredible investments and incredible returns. Um, you know, anecdotally, um, I had a team a long time ago when kind of 08 happened and my son was sick and I started really understanding energy more. I said to one of my um, uh, traders who worked for me, do you ever notice that the clients that kind of are in flow with us, that their portfolios do better, even though they're, we're investing the same thing? And he was like, no, it's stupid. Two years later, he looks at me, he goes, you're totally right. Like the, the ones that like are, it's hard to explain that are more engaged on a different level. Yeah, on, on a, a more esoteric level, the portfolios do better. So that's one way, you know, patty measure flow returns. I mean, this isn't, this, this really comes back to, it's, it's kind of full circle on all of this. Success, I mean, success still measures flow. It's just that success can come from a more multidimensional aspect. And I think the three, I think what we're gonna, what I hope to keep finding is that the, the, the more 3D extractive levels are gonna have less and less success with returns. I mean, the stock market, which is basically a big computer game now, I think is probably gonna finally just start going like this. My prediction is kind of straight up for 70 years. So it's hard for people to back off of it. Um, is I believe we're gonna continue to find the more multi-dimensional flowing investments having higher returns. And what are you seeing right now in the markets? I mean, where are people putting their money? Um, you know, is it in emerging countries such as India, like you mentioned? Um, is it their specific niche or industry that, that they're liking that's new? What, where are people putting their money in where you're seeing right now? Um, climate change is definitely, there's finally a bunch of funds. They're new and they're, they're venture. So that means you've got 12, 15 years. It's nice to see. I think we're going through a really interesting time in the markets. I mean, what was striking for me is that we did not have a financial crisis in COVID. And that to me was a little bit of musical chairs, wondering when the music's going to stop. Mm. Because it has to. I mean, we haven't had a financial, I've been through many financial crises in my 30 years in finance. And last one really was an 08. And that was structural to kind of the system, which we created derivatives. Um, so I think we're kind of going into a rejiggering of our, our global financial system with inflation, um, with what stock market's going to do. And so it's going to be really interesting to housing to really pay attention um, to where this global flow is going. And I think it's important. I mean, I've always loved fixed income. I mean, I do a lot of hold to maturity fixed income because your risk is binary. Mm. Are they going to default or not? And then private investments, investing and creating value. And then you get your, you know, you, in the middle of it, you get your returns of beat equities. Pretty Wait. easy equation for me. Sorry, continue. That's it, yeah. Holly, sorry about that. Um, question for you. With, with supply chains, being blown up during COVID, I guess it really being revealed during COVID with how maybe weak they were or strong they were in different parts. Um, with swap line plus countries now being in debt to the United States with the global, like literally movement of money going back and forth between our central bank to participating countries on a really a weekly basis. What have you learned from your, what, I guess, what, what lessons have you taken away from COVID that you're now going to apply in your new investment thesis? Um, I don't know if 
by large. I, I watched it. I mean, I watched the Fed um, create $200 billion a week for three years. I mean, I've, I've watched the, the, the powers that be in the big companies hold the, the stock market up. I mean, there's an article this morning in the New York Times about how many, um, how much equity trading there is in, in Congress. I mean, we know that. I remember the Postmaster General got 30 million in stock when he became, when he was appointed. So it's more of, I've kind of watched from the sidelines to see the manipulation that's going on. I mean, it always has. So I have clients ask me all the time, like what keeps me up at night? And my answer to them right now is not that I'm, I'm actually very much at peace because I feel like the truth's starting to flow out. I mean, we have to watch inflation and we have to um, watch currency. We have to watch all the elements. But to me, I'm kind of sitting back saying, finally, we're finally, because I'm I'm a very optimistic person. We're, we're always going to something better. We're always evolving into something better. And we can only evolve our financial system into something better if we get these kinks out and we get kind of the blockages out of the way. And we've had a lot of things held up in COVID. So that was, it, that was interesting to watch. It was interesting to watch us think we were hitting a financial crisis and the stock market was straight back up really aggressively while the Fed was printing money. So I'm just sitting back kind of feeling comforted that everything's going to start coming out, but I'm hoping it's a nice smooth ride. Hmm. And so far it kind of has been, I mean, you know, I hope it doesn't get much worse. It could, but hope it's not, hopefully it's not acute. It's a little bit more smooth as slowly we start getting ourselves out of this situation into more organic flows. Um, and we see what happens as the Fed stops, stops printing money and we see what happens with the dollar and we really see what happens with interest rates and jobs. A lot, a lot came out today, a lot of job cuts. <laughs> it's interesting, it's gonna continue, hmm. but paying attention is important. Holly, uh, looking forward to the future, what does the future of business look like to you? It comes from the heart in a fifth dimensional value system. Mm. It's using it's using all it's using our, our our brains, it's using our emotional bodies, using our spiritual bodies, using our physical bodies to make decisions. And it's creating win-win. It's really taking the value system that we've grown up with, um, what we try to teach our children. You know the the four agreements, the elements, and it's incorporating it into the way we do business. I am just every cell of my body knows that this is where we're going, and then and I'm gonna till I die do as much as I can to help us get there. Um, because it's it's the only successful way through this. This this is this is evolution. This is success. This is this is this is um this is increasing uh, betterness. I'm losing the word I'm looking for here. Well, I think it's increasing joy, um, and, and isn't that almost the definition of happiness that we're all trying to pursue deep down is do do what gives you joy, do what gives you energy. And that, to me, is almost the definition of happiness. Holly, it's been a pleasure having you on the show today. Really interesting and inquisitive conversation with me, Holly. Let's bring this home. What is your definition of a real leader? comes from love, 
took me a really long time to understand that I think love is a really loaded word. I wasn't even sure what it is. But love really is love of our planet, love of love of ourselves, love of our fellow human beings, love of, of nature, and making every decision that is evolving mother nature into something bigger and then the planet will follow suit if we love everything around us and we always come from that place of heart we're always going to make the decisions and we're always going to make the right decisions sometimes our ego is going to get in the way and sometimes we're going to be jerks and we're human beings but a real leader always comes back to that heart-centered work that's deeply of love and it's love for this planet and humanity and making decisions from that place for Holly Rucks and I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, come from a place of love, and always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Holly. Hey, Releaders, thanks again for listening to this amazing episode. And if you're someone like me who goes all the way to the end just to make sure I can extract as much information, education, and inspiration out of every single interview, might I suggest you check out our magazine. If you go online to Releaders.com today, you're going to get the first 30 days for free where you're going to be able to access all of our magazines courses and live events from some of the top thought leaders around the world. All you have to do is go online to realleaders.com and click the subscribe button in the top right corner to get your free 30-day trial right now. Again, that's real-leaders.com. Thanks again for being a real leader and always keep it real.